We're turning now to consider Hebrews 6 and verses 4 to 12 particularly. We're coming to what is called one of the warning passages in Hebrews. There are two or three of these, perhaps three particular passages in what is otherwise a very positive uh, epistle. Uh, And yet there are, in God's wisdom, such solemn passages as these. And uh, you'll notice the section we're looking at, which really does hold together as a section. In verse 4, it is introduced by the word for, F-O-R, for. He is going on to explain the consequences of not listening to the exhortation that has just been made. The exhortation that we looked at last week the need to build upon the foundations of the doctrine of Christ and to grow into maturity, the need not to just stand still or even go backwards in Christian things, but the need to press on in the Christian life looking unto Jesus. And he gives us now a warning that if we do not do that, for it is impossible, etc., for those who once been enlightened, and so on. Here is a solemn warning if the previous exhortation is not heeded. And what he is effectively dealing with here in this passage, I'm going to use um, a word that's not biblical. I don't think it's in the scripture, but it's the word apostasy. Uh, We do find that some words uh, do describe well uh, doctrines of, uh, of scripture. For example, the word trinity, even though That word isn't found in scripture. Uh, And it's the same here with apostasy. What is apostasy? Apostasy is not a theological swear word to throw at people who you disagree with in theological discussion uh, or to run down churches that might have, in your view, and perhaps rightly so, some erroneous um, uh, aspect to them. It's much more serious than that. The best definition of apostasy that I've come across is one by the great 17th century theologian John Owen, in which he says it is a total renunciation of all the constituent principles and doctrines of Christianity in an avowed and professed manner. And I think that does describe what we're looking at here. Once someone who professed Christ crucifying to themselves the Son of God afresh and putting him to an open shame. Let me say that again. A total renunciation of all the constituent principles and doctrines of Christianity in an avowed and professed manner. So it's not just backsliding. It's not just sinning very badly. We can think, for example, of Peter denying Christ. Or the man of 1 Corinthians 5 committing incest. Both of those repented. Both of those were brought back into the fullness of God's uh, grace and, and sanctification. No, it's not just those things. Although those things, or indeed any other sin, could be the first step towards apostasy. But apostasy is something far more radical, far more Obvious, a total renunciation 
of all the constituent principles and doctrines of Christianity in an avowed and professed manner. And it is that which the writer is giving a real warning to. That's at my first heading. It's a real warning. Verses 4 to 6. For it is impossible for those who were once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift and were made partakers of the Holy Ghost and have tasted the good word of God and the powers of the world to come, if they shall fall away to renew them again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Notice that he's not talking here about some hypothetical case. He's not saying if, you know, if this should happen. What he's saying is if it does happen, this is impossible. But the, there's not a hypoth- hypothesis about it. He's describing something which is true and actual and which indeed in church history we can see. Judas Iscariot would be a case in point. So he's not saying beware, be very much warned, but actually this could never happen. Rather, he's making a factual, objective statement saying that if this happens, it is impossible. So it's, very, it's phrased negatively, but in his negative phrasing, he's emphasizing not so much the possibility of falling away as the impossibility of renewal. It is impossible for them to be renewed again unto repentance. Now, clearly he's speaking to a particular pastoral situation here with the Jewish Christians, of many of them uh, finding that they want to possibly even go back to Judaism because they're so discouraged and so feeling the, the, the heat, as it were. But this is for more than just that context. This is for any context. And in this context and any similar context, he's saying, look, here is the warning. You're on the edge of a cliff. You either must go on to maturity or on to perfection, I think, in the A.V., You either must go on to maturity or else you're in danger of going back into perdition. You're on the edge of a cliff and if you you fall off, you cannot come back. That's the warning and very solemn it is. We do want to just heed one point though as we think of the warning in verses 1 to 3. He speaking in the first person and second person let us go on and this will we do if God permits but in verses 4 to 6 he's speaking in the third person it's as though he's describing now not them he's not saying this is you but this is what happens to, to some it's in the third person those who have tasted those who have been enlightened those who fall away And it's impossible for those to renew themselves unto repentance. So he's speaking here a real warning, but he's putting it in the third person. Secondly, he's speaking about real religious experiences in these people. He's not saying they've never had any any real 
understanding of Christianity. You know, they're just, uh, they're spiritually, as it were, blotter. They're spiritually out on a, another planet. No, they, he's not minimizing what they have experienced. He's saying they've tasted, they were once enlightened. <clears throat> they've tasted of the heavenly gift. This could be, be true of them. They've been enlightened. They've tasted of the heavenly gift. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. They've tasted the word of God and the powers of the world to come. He's not talking about talking down their experiences. You might say he's talking them up. He's saying they've had great experiences. In other words, there's something to fall away from. There's something to fall away from in terms of the height of their enlightenment. They've been enlightened. They've had truths which have enlightened them. They've understood. They've had spiritual experiences of some kind. They've tasted the heavenly gift. They've been partakers of the Holy Spirit. And we're reminded of the parable of Jesus, of the sower. And how he speaks about some within that parable who, hearing the word of God, with joy received it. And then they fell away. They had joy. So he's talking about the greatness of their experiences, the greatness of their enlightenment, and yet he doesn't actually say here, that they were saved. He doesn't actually say that they were regenerate. He is describing something, and it's hard for us to get our heads around this, but all that he's describing falls short of salvation. I'm reminded of the message that uh, I think it was Mark Fisher brought to us uh, recently from 1 Corinthians 13. Remember how that starts? Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels and have not love. Though I have the gift of prophecy and understand all mysteries and all knowledge. Though I have all faith so that I could remove mountains and have not love. I am nothing. Clearly that's not hypothetical either. The the ability to prophesy, the ability to understand mysteries of the faith. The ability... In the days of the apostles to speak with the tongues of men, with glossalia, with supernatural tongues, and yet to have a lack of the one essential thing in the heart, which is the result of salvation, that is love. One thinks of Balaam, for example, as well as Judas Iscariot. And one of the lessons, therefore, we have to take to heart here from this is that we should not underestimate how far someone can seem to go with Christianity and yet not be home and dry as far as salvation. It's possible to have this enlightenment. It's possible to have these give these experiences and yet not be born again. And only God knows The heart, of course. Now, it's a solemn warning, but the point is this. Those who have 
the graces of Christ in their heart. Those who have been born again will heed the warning. They will heed the warning. And this is one of the means that God uses to keep them from going over the edge of the cliff. In John chapter 6 and verse 37, let us hear the words of Jesus there. All that the Father giveth me shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me. And this is the Father's will which hath sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but I should raise it up again at the last day. And this is the will of him that sent me, that everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life, and I will raise him up at the last day. That is unequivocal. That is unambiguous. Those who have seen the Son, those who have believed on him, they have everlasting life. They will be raised up at the last day. Jesus will never let them go. He will never cast them out. So what we're looking at here in the apostate falls short of salvation. But those who have salvation will heed such a warning as this, and even if they got too near the cliff edge, as these Hebrew Christians have, they will step back. A real warning for those who've had real religious experiences. And then notice thirdly how the writer speaks about the real unnaturalness of apostasy. He does that in verses 7 and 8. For the earth which drinketh in the rain that cometh oft upon it and bringeth forth herbs meet for them by whom it is dressed receiveth blessing from God. But that which beareth thorns and briars is rejected and is nigh unto cursing whose end is to be burned. He's thinking of the gospel here as the rain coming down from heaven, watering the ground. And of the church, of believers, as like some sort of field or vineyard. And it receives this rain, it receives the sunshine, the blessing of God, and it brings forth fruit. It's a very similar uh, metaphor. Perhaps Jesus actually, or sorry, the writer actually derived his thought here from Isaiah chapter 5. Isaiah 5, the opening verses, we won't read the whole lot, but just glance at it it, if you have your Bible. The vineyard in a very fruitful hill, well looked after, well protected. It was pruned, it was digged, and the rain fell upon it. But instead of grapes, there came up wild grapes. Instead of luscious, edible fruits, they came up thorns and briars. It's utterly unnatural. Even outright believers who know where they stand, they just reject it and say, this is rubbish, I don't believe it. While that is sinful, it is not so unnatural as those who appear to drink in the rain that comes oft upon it But then when it comes to the fruit that they should have as professing Christians, they bring forth thorns and briars. They bring forth immorality. They bring forth heresy. 
They bring forth denial of Christ. Once they believed in him, now they do not believe in him. Once they professed him, now they deny him. And they deny him publicly in an avowed and professed manner. They crucify the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. It is utterly unnatural. And then he speaks of a real impossibility. Not an impossibility of this all happening, but an impossibility of restoration for the apostate. For it is impossible for those who've been once enlightened, etc., if they shall fall away to renew themselves again unto repentance, seeing they crucify to themselves the Son of God afresh and put him to an open shame. Why is there an impossibility here? Well, firstly, consider what they do. They crucify the Son of God. Now, we think of the crucifixion of Christ in the Gospels. We've perhaps read that more than once. We've read about the shouting, the blasphemy, the utter contempt with which Christ was treated, the scorn, if he's the son of God, let him come down from the cross and all this and giving him the purple robe and the crown of thorns and mocking him. They were full of cruelty, full of contempt. And what he's saying is that the apostate is in the same place in his or her heart. They're doing exactly that. They're saying effectively what they did to Jesus at Calvary in AD 33 or whenever it was, was right. That was just what they should have done. Even though once they professed him, even though once they were enlightened and experienced something of the powers of the Holy Spirit, perhaps particularly in a time of revival, which is when Hebrews was written in the wake of. But now they say the crucifiers were right and he was wrong. That's one reason why there's an impossibility of renewal. The second reason is this, that just consider how God responds to this situation. He has said he will not renew the apostate. He has said, I'm not going to take the people of God, for example, under Moses. I'm not going to take them all the way back to Egypt a second time and do a rerun of the Passover and of the Exodus and of the Red Sea crossing. I'm just not going to do that. Remember, there was something similar in the days of Caleb and Joshua. Remember, they wanted, uh, the spies came back with the report of the promised land and 10 of the spies said, it's a great place, but you can't, you you'll, we'll never make it. But two of them, uh, Joshua and Caleb, said, we can. God is with us. God will help us. But they didn't go in. But some of them then became, uh, I won't say repentant, but they began to think a second time about that. And they decided they would go in after all. And they tried to go in, and they met with defeat at the hands of the Canaanites. And they went back with their tails between their legs. God wasn't going to do a rerun, so to speak. And God doesn't do a rerun with being saved. 
turning to Christ. Hebrews 3 verses 10 to 12 can be said of the apostate too. Wherefore I was grieved with that generation and said they do always err in their hearts and they have not known my way. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. Take heed, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living gods. So there's that real impossibility. But now let us consider as our final heading that there's a real encouragement in this solemn section and it's particularly to be found in verses 9 to 12. Verses 9 to 12. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not so full, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Notice that he hasn't cancelled his warning in order to give them comfort. He hasn't said, well, there, there, Actually, I, I got a bit OTT and I've overstated my case here. But notice how he puts it. He says, though we thus speak. In other words, what we've said stands. But he now goes on to say, we are persuaded that it doesn't describe you. Beloved, we are persuaded better things of you. And things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. Why is he persuaded otherwise? Well, notice he brings in three things here that he doesn't bring in in his description of the apostate. Three things, three graces, faith, hope, and love. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed towards his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister, and we desire that every one of you show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Well, two, two graces, faith is implied. Hope and love. As John Owen talks about apostasy, he also says this, the least grace is better assurance of heaven than the greatest gift. Love to God and love to man. You've ministered to the saints. You do minister. You've ministered to God. He's not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love. You've done this in the confident expectation that Jesus shall reign and Jesus shall return. So he's encouraging them. He's saying, I'm persuaded of better things of you. As God looks on our hearts, does he see any of these graces, even a least grace, even a little grace, love, faith, hope, these three? Does he see anything of that? And brothers and sisters, if there is that there in our hearts, surely we can take to ourselves this particular comfort, but it doesn't cancel out the warning. 
Perhaps we can say to ourselves, we are persuaded better things of ourselves. But we must still do what he says in verses 11 and 12. Show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. Be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. Every one of you, he says. Every one of you. Not one of us who can be complacent in this matter. We must be like Paul in 1 Corinthians 13. Well, or in 1 Corinthians in those middle passages, uh, 13, 12, 13, 14. He says at the end of chapter 12, verse 31, he says, Covet earnestly the best gifts, and yet I show you a more excellent way. And as we read those passages, we realize the best gifts, particularly prophecy, he's saying, you know, want them, desire what can serve others. But you will sometimes have to take no for an answer because they're not for everybody. But here's something we will not take no for an answer. We must have love. We must have God's love shed abroad in our hearts. We must love God and love our neighbor. We will accept whatever gifts God gives or withholds, but we cannot accept not having the graces, the faith, the hope, the love. Pursue these. Give diligence in following the pursuit of these things. Don't give up. Don't go back. And... As he goes on to say at the end of this chapter, we have such a high priest, Jesus, after the order of Melchizedek, and we have such an anchor, an anchor there in heaven, this big, weighty object, an anchor, can be tons of metal. And what a strange anchor this is. Most anchors go into the ground But this anchor goes into the sky to keep us from drifting onto the rocks. And Jesus Christ is our anchor, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Is that where your anchor is, my brother, my sister? Well, if it's there, God will never let us go. But The way in which he will never let us go is by making sure that we heed the warning.